You're listening to Dirt Cheap, a Neon Hum podcast. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. This is the show where we read Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolf and Lester Fuller. Do you remember where we were, where we last left off? This is going to be chapter two. Well, the last I remember is that Phil Norris is a bad bookie. Yes. (laughs) Who can't stop commenting on furniture, but... Sounds like he now has to raise a bunch of money in order to get a divorce. Yes, am that's I right? right? His his wife will grant him a divorce, but only if he raises a lot of cash. I mean, this is a good scam, <laughs> honestly. Like, I uh, yeah, I don't uh, know why no, I didn't try that. No alimony. Too bad I like you too much it's, to be a bad wife. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. I like it. All right, well, you ready to buckle up and buckle in for chapter two? I am, yeah, I am ready. All right, here we go. Chapter two. The problem I had to face was this. Where could I raise 35000 in cash in the next 24 hours? In my line of business, you get to know a lot of people pretty well. But it's not the kind of relationship where you go to a pal and say, you're a little short and can he let you have 35000 until you can pay him back? Because pretty soon, the word gets around town that you're broke. And before you know it, nobody will place a bet with you. Besides, ever since the day when I was so hungry, I tried to panhandle a meal, and the first man I asked looked at me as if I were a basket case left over from the last war, I just was never able again to ask anybody for a scent that wasn't mine. There was only one thing I could do. I had to sell out. Mine wasn't the kind of business you go to a broker about or even put an ad in the classifieds. Jerry was the only answer. I counted up the average weekly income and figured that my half might be worth around 75,000, more or less. 35 for Edna, left around 40 for me. On that, I could sort a new setup very easily. Maybe not so neat a layout, but it wouldn't be bad at all. So I looked it up. 75000 yeah, would be like a million dollars today. I'm, yeah, that's a lot of money. It's a million dollar illegal bookie operation that he runs. Pretty good. Not bad. Not okay, bad. Not good bad. good okay. work, Phil. What do we think of Phil? So the, he discusses it in the first chapter, but the fact that we're sort of learning more about his character yeah. here. What do we think about the fact that he grew up poor? It does explain to some extent why he fetishizes things so much, why he values beautiful paintings and furniture and things like that. Something he, you know, the trappings of wealth. Yeah, right. the sim the symbolic kind of like expression of wealth as opposed to having it. But I also but, wanted to point out yes. that in at the beginning of the chapter, the way he talks about the panhandling, like I was once so desperate as to panhandle, and the way people treated me mm-hmm. taught me to just don't be poor. Right. As opposed to going, wow, it's crazy how we treat poor people in this country. Right. Everyone deserves a meal. Boy, you no. would hope that would no, make him answer- more empathetic, and I think it's made him less empathetic. If you are poor, according to Phil Norris, the only polite thing to do 
for fellow man is to quietly die in the gutter in obscurity and never ask for help. <laughs> That's like the ultimate honorable death in <laughs> Phil Norris's America. <laughs> I woke up late enough to miss the morning fog. The room was bright with sunlight that splashed all over the walls, making everything yellow. I felt clear-headed and good. It was even better after the orange juice and scrambled eggs and coffee. There were a couple of business matters I had to attend to, and I went out and took care of them. I didn't get back to the towers until the middle of the afternoon. Nobody greeted me when I stepped into the big room. They were all too busy. The telephones were ringing like church bells on Easter Sunday. All the boys, including Jerry, were exercising their good right arms on the sheets, scribbling fast. It wasn't exactly the Palmer method, but the figures they made were legible enough for an income tax man to read. Okay, I mean, I guess that's that's good for his own bookkeeping, but right. like, also, is that a diss at income tax preparers? Oh, I'm almost certainly. Given his history of yeah. hating every occupation, yes, yeah. It's like, it's oh, if you're leg- gonna be a CPA, <laughs> it's legible enough for an income tax man to read. They're so persnickety. Yeah, it's such a weird, like, snide thing to just, like, (laughs) slide into a sentence. (laughs) Gotta love Phil. You gotta love Phil. That's the sitcom. Gotta love (laughs) Phil. You gotta love Phil. I wandered over to Jerry's table and sat down, waiting for him to get a breather so we could talk. He looked awfully happy there, writing down the bets. He smiled up at me and motioned for me to wait. Finally, he hung up the phone and turned to me. Going good? I asked. Never better. I was going to miss the place, I thought. Jerry looked at me and frowned. You look worried. I told him what was on my mind and how much I wanted. His eyebrows came down and he probed with his fingers for a hair under his chin that he had missed in shaving. What do you think? I asked. The hair came out with a jerk. So Jerry is, like, touching his face, plucking the hairs out as, like, a nervous tick. That would be so painful to do that. I I, I just think, imagining doing that, and I'm like, oh, God, that would hurt so much. Also, more talk about his eyebrows. <laughs> I love it. The hair came out with a jerk. Well, I'll tell you. He said, as the fingers went exploring for another hair. The way I figure it is this. You must be in trouble or something, and needing cash fast to make me such a proposition. He blabbered on in that vein for at least five minutes, and then offered me 40000 I yelled so loud that the boys shot worried glances over towards us, wondering what was up. We argued some more, and then when I saw that he had me in a vice, we finally settled for fifty. That wasn't quite the way I had thought it out, but it still left me enough to start up again, even though in a smaller way. But that didn't make me feel any better about Jerry's chiseling, and I told him so. He is, once again, a poor negotiator. Yes! What What is he doing? <laughs> is there a book that we can recommend him? I feel like there were negotiating guides back then. It's just so funny that he is in a business where he would be constantly dealing with people trying to negotiate with him, and he is such a poor negotiator. I mean, it's one thing to negotiate so poorly 
with his ex-wife. Okay, like there's a lot of emotional baggage there, but this is like his business partner. Like you would think he would be the best at negotiating with his own business partner. Yeah, you'd think they'd at least be in sync on some stuff, but yeah, I guess not. Uh, I'm not sure how he's still in business, honestly. I'm like (laughs) trying to imagine how much more money his illegal booking racket would be worth if he was a better negotiator. (laughs) I know, it'd be like a $5 million empire as opposed to a $1 million empire. Oh, Phil. All right, we continue. You'd have done the same thing if you were in my place, he answered smugly. He started to write out a check, but I stopped him. Cash, I said. But why? It's gotta be cash, I insisted. Jerry looked at me as if he thought I was crazy, but he got up. Mm, We could still make it if we rush, he said. We got to the bank just as the guard was locking the doors, but he recognized us and let us through. In less than five minutes, we were back at the office in the towers. When he'd counted out the last of the $51,000 bills, Jerry offered me his hand as if we were still the best of friends. Come around and see us sometime, he said. We'll still be neighbors. I nodded, put the money in my wallet, and headed for the door. So, $1,000 bills. Okay, so... Have you seen them? $51,000 bills. Absolutely. I I mean, so... There were $1,000 bills back then? There were $1,000 bills. Who's on it? It's like Ulysses S. Grant. We're going to find out later. Oh, In the story, who was on the $1,000 bill. A little trivia. A little bit of trivia to look (laughs) forward to. But yeah, How do you fit 50 bills into a wallet? Yeah, 50 crisp $1,000 bills. How, like, was his wallet empty (laughs) in preparation for this? Oh, I'll believe that his wallet was empty. We'll say that his wallet was empty. Okay, fair enough. But still, like, imagine that I would be in constant terror. The terror, putting it all in your wallet. $51,000 bills in your wallet. I desperately want, like, a kid to pickpocket him. Absolutely. Yeah, this is just uh, imprudent. (laughs) Yeah, it makes me frustrated. Listening to that, it's like, oh, put $50,000 in my wallet. I like, (laughs) I now like understand how my dad felt when he gave me $20 once. Uh, and I just like put it in my pocket and just like went out to play. And he was like, how dare you? <laughs> You're going to lose that money. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I did. Oh my God. What a lesson. The $20 lesson. The $20 lesson. Though my mom once bought me a jacket, a London Fog jacket, and it cost $100. And it was by far the most expensive item of clothing I had ever owned. And she was like, if you lose this jacket, I'll kill you. (laughs) And like my mom is like very nice person and, you know, very sweet always. And so when she said that, it was like the most terrifying thing. And it worked. I did not lose that jacket. So like you'd never heard that before. I had never heard that before from her. I'd never seen that side of her. Uh, but I did, to be fair, lose my jackets quite frequently. So so she was like, all right, I'll put the fear of God into him. Ooh, another piece of the plastic on the cover fell off. Yeah, don't breathe it in. Uh-oh. <laughs> this book is full of asbestos. <laughs> he started to open his mouth, but I knew it was on his mind. Don't worry, I said. I'll have the door taken out. 
So he's talking about that door, his special door, between his apartment and the office. You can barricade it from your side till I get around to it. I made a mental note to talk to the management about it first chance I got. It was going to raise hell with my living room for a while, and I'd probably have to rearrange some of the furniture once that special door was gone, but it couldn't be helped. Could it? <laughs> the first, uh, it's interesting, okay, so basically, Jerry is now his enemy. It, like but Sworn his enemy. His sworn enemy, but the first thing he thinks of that's going to be bad is having to move his furniture and, like, lock his special door to his office home will no longer be accessible. Like, the rearranging of the furniture is way more important to him than the fact that he'll be living across from a guy who is his sworn enemy. Yeah, there's there's a lot of emotion here that I don't think he's sifting through. Definitely not. So he's just kind of decided to, like, put all of his anger at the, like, furniture and logistics yeah. of the situation. He's just like, I can only think of the furniture. <laughs> like, if I think of my relationships crumbling around me, it will be too painful. So I'm going to project <laughs> everything into the furniture. I went back to my own apartment and spent the whole afternoon planning the new setup and not feeling too bad about the whole thing because now I'd be really completely on my own. It wasn't until 7 p.m. that I realized I hadn't had a thing to eat since breakfast. I decided to go out for a meal. As I pulled my convertible up to the canopied entrance to Riley's restaurant, I saw a familiar figure stooping, taking a newspaper from a stack piled on one side of the doorway. The figure straightened up and turned around. It was my old friend, Murdoch, a wistful-eyed police detective whose mild appearance usually deceived strangers the way the smooth skin of a hot pepper could fool anyone but an initiate. He looked at me with a grin of pleasure. Hello, Mr. Norris. His voice was gentle. Hello, Murdoch, I said. By the way, you'd better see me personally from now on. Jerry and I don't feed at the same trough anymore. He seemed surprised. Fight? He asked. No, business. Well, he wrinkled his face philosophically. That's the way things go. I wanted company at dinner, so I asked him if he'd eat with me. In there? He pointed to the restaurant. It's on me. Murdoch shook his head and grinned. Not me, he said. It's too fancy. Then he folded the newspaper under his arm and turned to go. Be seeing you, Mr. Norris, he said as he ambled off. I waved to him and entered the restaurant. What do we think of Murdoch? I love Murdoch. Tell me what you love about Murdoch. Okay, I like that he said no to Phil. <laughs> Phil's invitation to go to dinner because it definitely felt sweaty and awkward. <laughs> like, I could feel it when you were reading. Like, yeah. they're just incidentally standing in front of this fancy restaurant. Right. And, like, he's like, hey, you want to eat with me? And it's like, oh, I see. You're sad. <laughs> oh, that's, you know what? Phil Norris describes Murdoch as his friend, right? Murdoch is just hanging around the restaurant. Do you think Murdoch was going to go in, but then Phil came in and, like, invited him in, and Murdoch was like, 
<laughs> oh, oh, I don't want to eat with Phil. I better make an excuse and get out of there. I literally, that's what I thought. But that could be a very, like, 21st century interpretation of this. <laughs> he could just be a wimpy type, and he's just like, hamburgers only. <laughs> but what's he doing there to begin with? I don't, was he there for the newspapers? He was stooping there, it said. He was, I saw a familiar figure stooping, taking a newspaper from a stack piled on one side of the doorway. So what does he do? So he just like, he's like the first person that Phil Norris has described, I think, as a friend to him. That's true. Which is also funny because he runs an illegal operation. So it's funny that the cop is his friend. But of course, uh, the cop is a client of his. Yeah, yeah. This is right? I mean. The, because, you know, <laughs> he's a cop. So I, I, Yeah. I mean, has there ever been a clean cop? No. I, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised by any of this. <laughs> this is a quote unquote good cop. This is who definitely. Just, who just does illegal gambling. For Los Angeles in the 1940s, Murdoch is absolutely a good cop. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is the best you could hope for. Best you could get. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're back. George, the head waiter, turned on the special smile he reserved for what he thought were well-heeled customers and hurried towards me with the usual glad hand. I didn't have to look at him or to listen to know that his face was set in a benign servile mask or that he was saying... Good evening, Mr. Norris. How are you this evening? <laughs> Here's another, put it up on the racket board. Oh, I love it. Police, not a racket, but a waiter at a restaurant. That's the biggest racket of he, all time. This person hates himself so much. <laughs> like, he is mad at the major D of a restaurant. He goes to a lot. <laughs> for recognizing him and giving him like basic nice service. I know. And it's also like the way, like the leery way that he's like judging, like, oh, they're only nice to the well healed customers. Like, I thought that's what you are. That's what you're trying to be. Isn't a, that a good thing? A, you are well healed. You run a million dollar business. And B, you're going to a fancy restaurant. Like, we all like going to nice restaurants. Yeah, but he, he hates himself so much that he has to find a way to shame and. <laughs> An employee for being nice to him. Absolutely. The yeah, he knows him. George the head waiter. So this is somebody that he knows by name, but yeah. yet he's still going to this fake restaurant. Oh, this fake phony restaurant where they're only nice to me because of they're nice to rich people. It's like it's Phil. Phil. This is exactly <laughs> the kind of dude who would like have sex with exclusively sex workers and just constantly right. like why aren't they why don't they want to talk afterwards like <laughs> yeah. why don't they want to give me gifts on Christmas <laughs> it's like they're so phony <laughs> you don't really love me you just want my money yeah that's definitely the terms of this arrangement <laughs> I said fine fine without thinking and started to brush past him but his voice was insistent. I'm sorry, Mr. Norris, there's no table available just at this moment, but if you want to wait just a little while, I'll... I told him I'd be at the bar. It was right there in the big room you entered as you went in. I found a seat in the jam of waiting customers and asked for a double scotch. 
Johnny the bartender fished out my favorite brand from behind a row of war substitutes. I looked up into the mirror and saw Edna walk in. George disentangled himself from the fat couple who had entered a moment earlier and walked over to Edna, and I heard her voice clearly through the hubbub. Then George bowed and went past me towards the dining room, and Edna, following him, came towards the bar. Her eyes met mine in the mirror. She stopped for a fragment of a second and then came closer. I didn't turn. So there you are, she said. I nodded to her image in the mirror. She edged closer to me, put her feet on the bar rail, hoisted herself up on my stool, and maneuvered until she was in possession of half of it. <laughs> uh, metaphor much? <laughs> yeah, this is pretty stool. funny. <laughs> the stool is like his money. <laughs> it's like what's going to happen to his money. How half dare. Of it, half of it will be hers. It's uh, inconceivable that a spouse would want 50% of the household. It's just really, wow, the nerve of Edna. <laughs> the, ner the nerve. I've been expecting a call from you all day, darling, she said when she got herself settled. I was going to get in touch with you after I ate, I told her. Is everything all set? She asked. Everything. She laughed cheerfully. This calls for champagne, doesn't it? Yeah, I said. Or arsenic. Don't be morbid, she laughed. I gave Johnny her order. As he stooped for the champagne bottle, I became aware of a tall, blonde young man hovering possessively behind Edna. He seemed vaguely familiar, and I dimly remembered that I had seen him come into the restaurant with Edna. But if she didn't feel like making it a threesome... <laughs> threesome. High five. Nice. But if she didn't feel like making it a threesome, it was her own lookout and it was perfectly okay with me. As Johnny placed a champagne goblet and my refill in front of us, the blonde boy said in a tentative voice, and one whiskey sour, please. Edna didn't seem to notice he was alive. Sipping the bubbly stuff, she said, remember the first time you bought me champagne, Phil? I remembered, but I didn't say anything. The third day of our honeymoon, Edna said, down in that sweet little town in Mexico, what was its name, darling? Medina Selly, I said. That's right, Medina Selly, she repeated. Okay, so we talked about this with our producer. Yeah. Um, because I think I wanted to know how the name was pronounced. And, uh, and Amanda, you pointed out that it's not necessarily Mexican sounding. It might be more European sounding. And we looked it up and apparently it's a town in Spain not in Mexico. You know what, though? It might also be a town in Mexico because it was colonized by the Spanish. Well, I hope the author got it wrong because that's funny. Um, but anyway, uh, we digress. That's right. Medina Sally, she repeated. And we lived in that little adobe inn and we asked the proprietor for champagne with our dinner one evening. Remember how he made believe he didn't know what champagne was and then confessed that he had just one bottle that he'd been saving? How did he say it? Oh, I remember. For the day of the liberation of man from man, the silly little fool sounded as if he believed it was going to happen the next day or by the 4th of July at the latest. 
Oh my god. That silly little <laughs> fool for believing that revolution was possible, that freedom would ever come to his people. And imagine saying that while there's a war for liberation on. Oh man. Oh yeah. Is Edna an America first bitch? Yeah. Cause like I I do not fuck with Edna now. Yeah, you're out you're at off first, the edge of train. At first she was giving me that like Mariah Carey, I'm gonna sue my ex-fiance for wasting my time energy. Right. And now I'm just like, okay, she's no, just, this is just a fucking nonsense person. <laughs> she's just like, I want what's coming to me and everybody else is dumb. Everybody else. I mean, maybe in that sense, like they kind of deserved each other. Just like Edna kind of believes that everybody is bad too and just sort of like goes from person to person sucking resources from them. Yeah, that's definitely what like a rich white woman would do in this (laughs) era. That's the only way you could really have power. And like, yeah, it just seems like she just finds it amusing. Right. Like, it's it's in a yeah. way oh, she, she is- she definitely m- finds it amusing. She called him a silly little <laughs> fool. Also, why Mexico? I'm trying to imagine why they would choose to go to Mexico as opposed to getting on a plane and going- Yeah, going to- To, like, uh, well, and, and, like, Canada. I don't know. Like, they can't go to the Pacific Theater. They can't go to the European Theater. Well, maybe, but- they, maybe they went to Spain and she just got confused. <laughs> 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 That's a very real- possibility that that happened it's yeah i guess i don't remember the the flight was a little bit long from from los angeles but i guess we were in mexico people were speaking spanish she's champagne (laughs) drunk all the time right so probably who knows (laughs) i remembered it i remembered more i remembered that i had been sure that what edna and i had together would last forever Johnny put the whiskey sour down in front of us, and a hand reached in over my shoulder to get it. One check? Johnny asked. Edna grabbed the hand and pulled the blonde young man closer. I'm sorry, she said. You two haven't met. Phil, this is Tommy McGowan. Tommy, my husband. The young man mumbled something into his glass, and I nodded vaguely. He was the type who couldn't be conspicuous if he tried. Thin, watery-eyed, in his mid-twenties, He was the kind who always faded into the wallpaper. You could have seen him every day for a month and never quite remember what he looked like. Damn. Wow. Wow, Phil. That's a that's a burn. That's a sick Phil burn. Wow. He compared. He, he says he looks like wallpaper. That's pretty cool. I love it. Yeah, that's a good. That's a that's a solid Phil slam. It is. Phil slam. You eating alone? Edna asked me. Soon as I get a table for one. You'll have to wait a long time, darling. Angling for a free meal? I asked. On the contrary, she said, her voice like syrup. I'm inviting you to dine with us. I was hungry, and in spite of George's smile, it looked like I'd still have a hell of a long wait for a table. Riley's doesn't approve of solitary diners monopolizing a table big enough to seat four. A pleasure, I said to Edna. I followed her and the thin young man into the dining room, and we sat down at one of the booth tables. The young man looked embarrassed. I want a drink, Edna announced. After a while, when the waiter had brought her the drink and disappeared, she said abruptly, Let's talk business, Phil. Not here. Don't worry about Tommy, she said, indicating the blonde boy. 
he doesn't understand anything but Sanskrit. Sanskrit? Sanskrit? What? He doesn't understand anything but Sanskrit? I'm trying to think about this. All and he I, understands is Sanskrit. I, so I think she is saying, don't worry about him because he's like a nerd and all he thinks about is like his like his Egypt books. <laughs> so he doesn't he doesn't care about like our marriage. But I am projecting, honestly. I'm going out on a limb yeah, for this, this is a joke lot. here. Um boy, that's yeah, that is a weird thing for her to say. I mean, she has get, been drinking a lot of champagne. You know what? Let's call it that. <laughs> She's drunk. Uh, I'll do it better. Hold on. I'll do it like she's drunk. He doesn't understand anything but Sanskrit. (laughs) That's that's how. It makes a lot more sense, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. The boy nodded amiably. (laughs) Oh, he agrees. That's funny. The boy nodded amiably, his blue pale eyes almost white in the glare of the match he was holding for Edna's cigarette. Not here, I said again. I told you I had to have it today, Edna said in a low, sullen voice. We'll talk it over at my lawyer's tomorrow at two o'clock. You'll get a pile of oblong green papers with a picture of James Madison on them. James Madison is who was on $1,000 bill. If you guessed it right, congratulations. You'll get a pile of oblong green papers with a picture of James Madison on them. And I'll get a large sheet of paper with a lot of typing on it in your signature. I felt fine with the 50 grand in my wallet. It's amazing that all of this is happening while he has 50 grand in his pocket. It is very funny. He's like, I like that he just like, he was just like, yeah, you know what? I I did the thing that you asked. I brought $50,000 to you, but I didn't give it to you. He's got to have a shred of power. Right. The one thing that he's got. Is yep. that he hasn't given it to her yet, and he's going to give her a lot of trouble. Well, let's see if he holds on to that power. Okay. She inhaled deeply and then let the smoke out with a deep sigh. That was a bad sign. Is that how you want it? Edna said at last. That's how it's got to be. Okay, Phil. She dipped the lighted end of her cigarette into her coffee. It spluttered and gave off a rancid odor. You know, you're very transparent. Here it comes, I thought. Did you for a minute think, she continued, that I wouldn't find out how much you got from Jerry? The good Riley's corned beef and cabbage turned sour in my stomach. Oh, I guess they're eating. Okay. (laughs) We made a deal, I managed to say. Yes, darling. We made a deal on the basis of that was all you had. Now I find out you weren't quite honest with me, I don't think I'll be at your lawyer's tomorrow at two unless... Oh, uh, I just want to say there is a domestic violence coming up. And uh, if you do not want to hear that, you should skip ahead. Unless what? I felt awfully dumb sitting there as if I didn't know. Don't be stupid, Phil. Her smile was too sweet. I got to my feet, leaned across the table, and for the first time in my life slapped her hard across the mouth. That was twice in two days that she had got it. 
Wow. They're sitting like at a table. They're sitting at a table in a public restaurant. And there's like dinner and there's yep. drinks. Corned beef and corn be <laughs> champagne like, and all. How do you slap her without also hitting uh, Johnny or Tommy or whatever his name is? The <laughs> person whose name he keeps forgetting. As, or Phil is definitely pretending to not know his name. He's right, like, yeah, because he's jealous. Yeah, right. the name is all he can think about. It's right. burned in his brain. <laughs> uh, yeah. He is bad um right. <laughs> and he is doing bad right now um this is very bad because he's such a bad negotiator he puts himself in these shitty deals and then realizing later without actually acknowledging it because he would never acknowledge that right. he was the fool right but is now just gonna like drag his heels do like a shittier job <laughs> just because he did a shitty job of negotiating so it's like now nobody can be happy <laughs> yeah i think you're right he wants power but by trying to get power he actually lost quite a bit of it oh, once, yeah. so once again he is a fool and misogyny is like the only way he can regain his power yeah it's the only way he knows right because I, I would assume that like that was the next right. move was slapping the so, her for the at the first mention of how this wasn't <laughs> what we agreed like right. like i assume that like they'd go to the lawyers tomorrow and the lawyer would be like uh oh i have to type it up while you're here and then it's like haha you you have to wait while men do work <laughs> like it's like know. ultimately he just wants to see her again yeah, in my head so, that's all it is it's so funny cuz as much as he protests about like how much he hates her and how much he wants it over with he keeps drawing it out when he doesn't have to so you know he's a fool who's a lonely sad man <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, he's just a sad man with real bad shame issues. <laughs> love me. Love me, love me. <laughs> and no, please, please love, love me. me. <laughs> hold, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Can we get a can we get a piano backing, please? Yes, please. <laughs> love me, love, love me. me. Why won't, won't you, you love, love me? me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why I mean, God, Edna is yeah. Like, she's bad, but I'm still, like, kind of pleased whenever yeah. <laughs> she pisses him off. Because you can tell like, it really gets <laughs> under his skin. Right. The blonde boy tried to get up. Look here, he began. I pushed the table hard up against his ribs, and he sat down <gasps> quickly. Take that, nerd. <laughs> I added to this. <laughs> <laughs> there was a hubbub in the room. Several of the diners and some of the waiters had seen me slap Edna, and they were busy telling about it to those who hadn't seen. I want, please, wow. please, editor, I don't want to redo it. I want it to sound as awkward as it is written. Yeah, please say that sentence again, because wow, what yeah. a masterpiece. Several of the diners and some of the waiters had seen me slap Edna, and they were busy telling about it to those who hadn't seen Neat. Beautiful. <laughs> I looked at Edna. She was glaring hatred at me. And triumph, too. After all, what was a slap in the face compared to all the dough I had in the world? I wondered what she had got for the other slap. I decided it was time for me to leave. I pushed through the entrance doors. The cool evening air hit me like a fist. And 
and that is chapter two. <laughs> the uh, wind, don't worry, when I walked out of the restaurant, the wind hit my face real hard, so it's like <laughs> I got slapped too. <laughs> right, right, that was what the What is ju- happening? Mo- mother, quote unquote, mother nature got me back, so the gender parody the is ul- equal. The ultimate misogyny, yeah. man versus nature, is ultimately just another misogynist story. <laughs> Yay. Oh, uh, Phil. Well, what do we think of chapter two of Murder in the Glass Room? Okay, so like, I guess the ultimate lesson I've learned is that a slap in the face is just the cost of doing business. It's like a service fee. The, oh, the disgust with which he like says, oh, what did she get for that other slap that I witnessed? It's like, (laughs) no matter what, she had done something to deserve that slap and you had no questions. Yeah. uh, Other than, oh, what'd you get? What'd you get off of that guy? I don't know, man. I don't know what Phil gains from any of this. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, guess what's coming up next week? Oh, no. What? (laughs) Next time, chapter three, there will be a murder. A murder? Yes. But where? Well, you may be surprised to hear it takes place in a glass room. Oh, my God. That's next time on Dirt Cheap. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. 